The scripture for today is from Luke chapter 15, which you can find on page 1591 of the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with, one, with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Sharon. How you doing, High Point Church? Good, good. It's good to see you all. Um, hope, I trust you've had a good weekend, and now, now I, uh, winter officially, uh, December 23rd, 24th, something like, like that. But everybody knows in the Midwest, especially here in Madison, right, as soon as you get that first real snow, that sticks, amen, or you got to maybe have to use your shovel. That's when winter starts. So welcome to winter. Welcome to winter. Um, today we're going to continue uh, in our Entrusted series, um, and we're talking about stewardship. And we've said that a steward is someone who manages everything that owns nothing. And that defines uh, Christianity, that even our lives, we are uh, made in the image of God. Um, uh, we don't own our lives 
uh, Christ has purchased uh, our, our lives and we serve him in all that we have. And so we're looking today at how stewardship in, affects uh, evangelism. And, and Jesus in this particular episode in Luke 15 is teaching the Pharisees who should know more than anybody what real stewardship is. He's giving them a lesson in spiritual stewardship. Um, my 25th wedding anniversary was in 2014, right, wifey? 14? 2014? Yeah, that's right. I should know because my 30th is coming May 27th, 2019. Anyway, give me a round of applause. Come on, give me some love. 30 years. 30 years. I'm still having fun. I'm still delighted to be married. Married. Sometimes you might see me walking around giddy like I'm a, 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 a newlywed, you know. Um, uh, at my 25th wedding anniversary, I did something I never did. But wifey and I did something we never did. We took two weeks off. And so like you, I work hard for a living, almost impossible to get two weeks off unless you're a teacher who's got the summers off, right? The rest of us, about a week, and then after a week, uh, you know, their boss starts looking at your desk and say, we got, we got to hire someone, right? But, but, but I, I took two weeks off, and we had a wonderful time. Went to Cancun, Mexico, stayed at a, a wonderful hotel. Uh, we stayed in a, in a room, a suite that was bigger than our first apartment in River Forest, Illinois. I'm telling you, we were living in style. We could order a room service or we could go and spend way too much money in one of the hotel restaurants. We ended up going to Walmart, even in Mexico. Walmart, talk about, talk about world domination. And, and, buy, and, buy, and buy groceries. So some nights we cooked, some other nights we, uh, we ate in. And, um, but we just had a wonderful time on the beach. And uh, after a week's time, uh, we actually were able to relax. It's so cool that there are uh, companies that are recognizing, like, like Epic, and are recognizing that there are laborers who work really hard, sometimes working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, can get an extra break. Because after one week, we just were able to decompress. So the real vacation didn't start until the second week. And we had a great time. We did one excursion. We went on the ATV uh, we went to a remote part of Cancun uh, that was a trail for ATV rides. So we were on these Honda ATVs, and we had, we had the, the tour guide from, from hell. He was, like that, he was like that Marvel character who catches on fire and rides a wheelie on his bike. You know, that was the tour guide, all right? And he's whipping us. There's 20 of us on these ATVs, and we're whipping through uh, this, this remote area. And my wife is on a separate vehicle, and she gets to a place where there's, there's, there's some shrubs on the, on the left-hand side. And um, she gets to a place where one of the branches catches her ring. And so this picture, that's supposed to be four prongs <laughs> on the wedding ring I gave her back in 1988-ish. It, 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 there's four, the fourth one, the fourth one is, is, is pu pulled out of place. And the emerald cut diamond was pulled off. And it took me 15 minutes to find Deborah. The whole uh, caravan of ATVs had stopped. And I caught up with my wife. Uh, her ring is on. Her fingers are bleeding. She's distraught. Where is my engagement ring, right? In our story this morning... Um, the first scene is that there's 99 sheep and uh, there's 100 and, and the one is lost. And the owner leaves the 99 in search of the one. Then the next scene is there are 10 coins, drachma. Uh, each coin is about a day's wage. So about two weeks work of labor, right? But, but they, they lose one day's wage and he stops everything and goes and finds. And when they find the, the sheep, uh, when they find the coin... There's a celebration. We lost the engagement ring. My wife was devastated. So she's sobbing, and I know what this meant to her. I know that I, I knew we were in trouble. There was probably 20 acres of land, a real remote area, and a little bitty diamond. Now, even a big diamond is only this big, right? Only it, so how are we going to find this thing? So uh, we get the laborers, the people who work there, and they all start looking with us. 
So five, six, we got rakes and we're going through brush and doing, uh, turning dirt over. First half an hour, no ring. One hour, no ring. Hour and a half, no ring. We're switching locations. We thought we had it narrowed down to probably where it occurred. Two hours, no ring. Two and a half hours, I say, I'm saying to myself, Deborah is never going to stop this on her own. I'm going to have to call this at some point and say that, admit that we just can't find it. Two and a half hours, no ring. Three hours, no ring. About three and a half hours, I turn to wifey. I say, wifey, wifey, I'll replace it, but it doesn't look like it's going to turn up. And this is Mexico. It's hot, right? We're tired and uh, exhausted and tired and still with tears in our eyes. We give them a note. We say, hey, if you find it, you know, this is where you can reach us, right? Fat chance for that, right? And you can bet, indeed, we never found that ring. But when we got back home, I found a good jeweler in Middleton. And for double the cost as the original one, (laughs) you have the replacement diamond. And I knew I'd better do good. And I worked for a company where they gave you rewards. They gave you diamonds and a ring and a sales ring. And I had them, hey, chunk this up and make her enough something else pretty, right? And they did. And so uh, we have the replaced ring. And the ring was important. It signified, what, what, what it signified was important, the commitment that we made to each other, to death do you part 25 years. But the ring I could replace. But what I want to say to you is if I had lost my sons, my oldest son, Jason, or my youngest son, Jared, how am I going to replace the sons? Right? Impossible to replace the sons. I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't have le- left Mexico. It took me a couple years. And even after two years, exhausting all my resources, if I left, I'd have been like, honey, I got to come back. And I'd have come back again looking for the lost sons. In this particular story this morning, we have a father. He seeks to save lost sons. He's got one son who's lost to self-indulgence. I'll explain that to you. Uh, You'll recall that I, I talked about the destroyer of stewardship two weeks ago from Luke chapter 14. The destroyer of stewardship is self-centeredness. This one son, he just wants to party. He wants to do his thing. The second son is lost to self-righteousness. Um, he, has, he thinks that resources are more important than his younger brother. And so this father, this story is about a father who goes after two lost sons. The first we said is the son that's lost to self-indulgence. And the second is the son that's lost to self-righteousness. Let's start with the first. The father seeks to save the son lost to self-righteousness. Now the interesting thing about this story is this. The son goes to the father and just like now, um, uh, inheritance happens when the father is dead. Essentially what this son says, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I'm like, come on, man, your money. Come on, your money. He says, give me my my share of the inheritance. What's amazing about this story is that the father doesn't get insulted. The father's looking at his son. The, the, The text doesn't tell us about how old the son is. I have in mind about an age when this started happening to my kids. Man, I have an age, 18 to 22 is probably, that's just my mind, it's not in the text. Uh, but but they, they come to the father and say, hey, I want my share. And back in that time, the way the estate was split was, was uh, 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 two parts of the inheritance went to the oldest son who would take care of his mom and any sisters that got married and keep the family estate. Two-thirds would go to the oldest son, and one-third would go, uh, one part would go to each other son. So he's two sons, two-thirds to the oldest. When he sells everything, he splits it between the two because he knows his sons have to learn a lesson. What I'm learning about parenting is I need more wisdom now with sons who are 19 and 24 than I did when I had sons that were 5 and 10. He knows that his sons need to learn a lesson, his, his oldest, this youngest son. 
So without complaining, without complaining, and this is astounding to me as a dad, he, turn, he sells the estate, liquidates it, and shares it because it's, he knows his son needs to learn a lesson. Insults test your humility. When we have trials in, in any part of our lives, the trials seldom build character. They just reveal the character we have. In this father's uh, case, we, he reveals that he has got wisdom. He doesn't allow his son's hubris, foolishness to get him off the task. What is, it, what is the task of a parent? To raise Godly, well-adjusted, and children. And sometimes, man, everything you can do to keep calm as you look at what's really important versus how angry you might be. But this, this parent has got wisdom, and he doesn't allow the insults to set him off. I have a sister, my youngest sister. Lord, have mercy. She just has a way of saying things that will just set you off and mean-spirited, even out of, sometimes out of nowhere. I'll be like, man, where did that come from? And, but what I have learned is, is if I go there, if I let that trigger a similar response, I'll break the relationship. So this father sucks it up because he sees what, he has a bigger end in mind. Are you able to be able to be humble when insulted? Here's one. Here's another. Raise your hand if you ever said something to your mom or your daddy you never should have said. Raise your hand. And the rest of y'all, if you didn't raise your hand, you lying. <laughs> There's at least one time when you said some stuff. This might be a time before your parents, if they're still around, that you make that phone call and say, you remember that time when da-da-da-da? And they're going to probably say, yeah, I remember. <laughs> it was all I could do to keep from... But, but we want to remember here in this story of the lost son, in order to restore fellowship with this son, he had to respond with wisdom and not with anger. That's the first thing we see about how the father restores the, the son. He, he responds gently, calmly. And then the father lets the son go his own way and experience the consequence of his choices. It's my generation that has been known as the helicopter parents. So my dad was a World War II vet. Those, my, my mom and dad, they didn't coddle. They raised, they taught order, and they let us go. And you burn yourself, you're like, oh, you burned yourself. Don't do that again, okay? How about that? It wasn't a coddling generation. They didn't feel like they had to go to all my sports events. I turned out just fine. And they felt like it was cool if I started working at 13, 14. That was cool with them. Learn some responsibility. But then the parents come like us, and we say, it was hard, and it was tough, and we lived in this one little house, and it only had one little bathroom, and I'm not going to raise my kids like that. And so we go, we work really hard, we gain all these things, and then we just, oh, we, I, they have to have, they have to play on eight sports teams, and, and they got to have all the AP classes, and I, I've got to be at all the events. We coddle, and, we, and then we, nerd, we keep them from the consequences of their behaviors, in my case, until, until they got about 18, 19. Then a flashlight went off. I had one of those moments where one of my sons kind of insulted me, and I was like, what? <laughs> he was going through college and trying to kind of figure out what, what it would take to, to succeed in college. He was having a really rough time of it, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to coddle him. I'm going to let him experience the consequences of the bad behavior. And sure enough, I watched this son gradually mature. That's wisdom. I didn't have that wisdom when I was parenting 5 and 10 and 12 years old. But when they got to 18 and 22, Jesus turned the light bulb on. The mind of Christ kicked in. Come on now. The mind of Christ kicked in. And then I was able to say, no, I need to let this child experience some of the consequences for their foolishness. That's what this father does. Sometimes discipline is necessary for spiritual gain. That's what we see with this child. But then the son comes back, and the father's humility is really seen because the father receives the son back with joy. 
Ress Morgan was here at High Point Church about two weeks ago at the gospel, uh, annual gospel fest. And he was one of the, he's a phenomenal Christian a soloist, but he's got an interesting ter- testimony, a really difficult testimony. His parents were pastors in Henderson, Tennessee, mom and dad. When Wes was 11 years old, he started experimenting with marijuana, and he found out he liked it. By 13, he was a coke addict, and, and he was uh, uh, hooked on drinking, drank too much. By 14, 15, he was in and out of juvenile detention. By 16, the elders of the church were saying to the pastor, his dad, Pastor Morgan, you're going to have to cut him loose. I mean, you keep letting him back in, and he keeps fooling around, and he's sleeping around. He's embarrassing you. He's embarrassing the church. And for about 14 years, Wes Morgan went through this period of in and out of rehab and, and drug addicted. In his middle 20s, there was a little reprieve where he got some Christian education, married a godly woman, had a child, but by 26 or 7, he fell back into the same problem. Now, there are some parents that have been there. I know this sounds strange, but I know people at High Point that have had to walk children through this. When he comes 29 years old, he, he has his friends in the back car. He's drunk, he's stoned, and he's driving way too fast. He gets into a car accident. Um, two of the, of, of the three people in his car, uh, they had minor injuries. One person was on death's door. He was sticking with, with, with charges uh, of uh, involuntary manslaughter, charges were on, he was looking at. He was in the prison once again, 29 years old. He says this prayer to God. He said, Lord, I don't have no excuses. I know better. I said, Lord, but I don't want you to deliver me unless you can help me overcome this. Lord, don't send me out of prison unless I can overcome this. He says while he was praying, the Lord gave him one word. It was accountability. And here's how he handled it. He went to his parents and he asked them, could he stay? 29 years old, married one child. Can I stay with you? For the next 18 months, he never leaves the house, West Morgan, without being accompanied by his mom or his father or his wife. Over that 18 month period, no drinking, no drugs. Now he goes around the country giving his testimony. Now there were consequences. The consequence was he lost his first wife. There were consequences for his sin. But his parents didn't cut him off. They received him with joy when he was ready to repent. And this is the kind of humility that God has for every person. He says if they will turn from their ways and come to him in repentance and faith, he will receive him. So this father, this is how he restores the son lost to self-indulgence. He's, he's humble and not insulted. He lets him receive the consequences of his sin, and when he comes back to his senses, that is the young son, he receives him with joy. I like the picture of what the, what the, the scripture says. It says that when he was far off, when your kids are not at home and you know they're in danger, you don't sleep well. And you're always looking for when the doors might open. Come on with me, somebody. Somebody know what I'm talking about here. You're always looking for when your kids are going to be coming home. And it doesn't, the keys don't jingle in the door. He sees them a long way off, right? And in this time, unheard of for a Jewish father to go looking after his son. In fact, when Nick preached, preached this 10 years ago, when he first started here, he said something really interesting. He said, the response was something like, for most parents would be something like this. Boy, this better be real good. Right? This better be real good. None of that self-righteousness. He runs out and gets the son. And the son begins to, 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 to apologize. He says, Father, I've been out. I sinned against you in heaven. And before he can get it out, he says, Son, he restores him. He gives him a new uh, clothing, a robe. He gives him shoes for his feet. He gives him the family signet ring. He restores him. He says, you were dead, but now you are alive again. And he receives him with joy. And this is, of course, to remind us of the grace of God that is really what has drawn any Christian who has devoted himself to God has come to terms that they're not as much as they thought they were, and God has graciously embraced them in. 
So we see this in this story. And that's how Wes Morgan was restored by his earthly father and his heavenly father. For God forgives us by absorbing the debt of the sin. Anytime you forgive a sin, it costs you something. If I'm going to restore the relationship, there are most sins that we commit against each other relationally that cannot be paid for to, to fix. A breach of trust, you can't pay for that. So that the person who forgives has got to pay for it in their own self. They're going to say, I'm going to take the emotional pain of this. I'm going to absorb it so that I can restore my relationship with my spouse, my son, my friend, my boss. So all forgiveness requires an absorbing of the debt. That's what Christ does for us on the cross. So the father seeks to save the son. That's the first son. He handles the insult. He lets the son experience the consequences. Not so the son can be punished, but so that the son can be trained. Come with me for for a minute. The focus isn't on the punishment as it was for the training and the character development. Come on with me. Are you with me? Some of the parenting mistakes I have made have come when I was angry and trying to discipline my children. One of the things I had to learn about parenting is never parent in anger. I had to look at what the situation was. I had to look at what the character deficiency was. And then I had to respond in kind. And when it took me, man, 15 years, it took me teenage. The teenager years taught me a lot of that, man. And maybe if your kids are younger than that, I can save you some of the pain. You, you can let me absorb the pain and you can get the freedom. Come on with me. Come on with me. And so you don't want to discipline your children out of anger. You want to discipline them out of what they should be, out of character development. And that's how this father does. And the son comes into repentance. Now the second son. In some ways, this is the tougher act. Because the second son... It's like a lot of us. Grow up doing the right thing at the right time, and we think that we're righteous. Right? Second son. The self-righteous son. Now, the son has worked a hard day in the fields like he does five or six days a week, with, along with his father, building the family's wealth. He's coming back from work like any other day. But there's a party going on. I don't know what kind of music they're playing. Jay-Z or whatever. There's a party going on. And he's like, man, what's, what's up? And one of the people come to him, one of the servants come to him and say, your brother has come back. And your father has restored him fully and killed the fatted calf. And this son is like, you got to be kidding me. That no good, dirty rascal is coming back? And he is hot. Look at what the, what the scripture says. The older brother, I can see him walking home and getting hotter as he thinks about this. It's hot out here. I'm working like a dog week after week. And this scrub has been out partying with prostitutes. And he coming back and receiving blessing. And they're throwing a party. The oldest son was angry. He refused to go in. So his father comes out. And the father is about to take a bigger insult than the first time. The father goes out looking for the son, pleading with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That's probably a lie, right? I mean, come on now. I mean, even us self-righteous types, the kind that I was one of those kids that did everything right and went to high school and went to college and never got into problems and never been suspended. But I disappeared. I disobeyed. But oh, he's, you hot. And so you say you exaggerate. You know, you exaggerate. I never disobeyed my, kid, my father. You never, yet, yet, he says, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. In other words, Dad, you are stingy. The wicked son does wrong, and you, ha- you have a feast. The fatted calf was reserved for the best feast and the most important occasions. You have a feast for the scoundrel, but for me, working hard, you've got nothing. He doesn't understand some things that I'm going to explain in a minute. 
But when this son of yours, not the brother, not my brother, when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you will kill the fatted calf for him. Now listen, this one hits home to me. I had a sister, older sister, and her teenagers, teenagers got pregnant, um, had two young children, and uh, lived in my household. And there would be times when three, for three or four months she would go off and nobody knew where she was. And she would waste her life and do all kinds of stuff, uh, states away. But her children would be left. My mom, uh, by this time my parents were divorced, my mom would work nights. So my older brother, who was maybe a teenager, 14 years old, and me were responsible for the household. And we were nice, self-righteous, so we did, we did the best we could with them. Kept people in order, kids to school, made sure they ate, took care of laundry, did the best we could. Three, four months later, she'd come back. All hell would break loose in the house until three months later she'd leave again. This cycle would go on. And this built up in me a self-righteousness and an anger that it took years for me to get over. I'm telling you, years. Here's the question for you. Who are the people in your life who you don't b- believe merit God's grace or yours? Who are the people in your life who you believe they've done so much wrong that God shouldn't forgive them and I won't either? I want you this week to identify them. Even if there's just a little bit of bitterness, or there could be a lot of bitterness like I had for years. There could be a little, could be a lot. Either way, I want you to identify them and I want you to begin praying for them. That God would change your heart towards them. You know, it's possible to be in church your whole life, serving and doing the church stuff, and be out of fellowship with God. This son is the Pharisee. He's doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He's doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He's at the church and out of fellowship with God. He's in a 30-year marriage, Lord help me, and out of fellowship with his wife. No joy. Only can talk about sacrifice and not blessing and not benefiting, not rejoicing in what has transpired. How many of us have been in the church our whole lives and don't experience the joy of the Lord as your strength? I want to talk to you a little bit about avoiding self-righteousness. So the father goes out and explains that the son has everything. He says to him, listen to what the father says. The first thing is you have me. If you have good parents, and I don't care if your parents missed it on some areas. All of us do. All of our parents miss it in some areas. One of the blessings of being in, in ministry is to see some of the college-age students when, when their parents come and how they rejoice in and seeing their parents again, or they think it's fun to go back to be with their parents because they remember what a blessing it was to not have to pay the bills yourself. <laughs> Somebody else pay the bills. <laughs> they remember what a blessing it was to have a loving example of a couple before you. The blessing is in the relationship. Without the, without the relationship between you and Jesus, you don't really have anything. So, so the father says, I'm with you always. And then secondarily, he says, and then all that I have is yours. Remember in the story, he's already sold the assets off. He's given one uh, part, one third to the one son and two thirds to the other son. The son works for his father. He's probably being well paid by his dad. Not too many dads who work with their sons pay him poorly. Now, I do hear examples of that sometimes, but it's really hard to, for a father to be unfair to his son. That's difficult. So he's got this son, and everything is theirs. He says he owns everything. The father is saying to it in his mind, he's like, you can throw a party at any time you want, and I'll be there partying with you because everything is yours. I used to tell my sons, um, I said, if I travel, when they were in my house, you travel. If I'm going to Hawaii, 
you going away. If I got a nice car, you got a nice car. Everything I have is yours. And so this is, that's really what's going on. But this son has missed it. He's been in the household with a loving, gracious father the whole time and missed the blessing. So how is it that we can miss our blessing? Some of the ways I see sometimes myself missing the blessing is missing out on the joys of corporate worship. Sometimes folks will, will start a service at 9 o'clock and we'll have a, a third or half of the service there. And then by the midway through, the folks come. And what they'll miss is, what they'll miss is the times when you and I sing of God's goodness together. And there's just something special that happens when we rehearse the gospel in song together that doesn't happen by yourself. Come on with me. It doesn't happen by yourself. I don't care if you're a great singer and you got the best songs on your phone. There's an experience that only happens when we get together with Jesus. He said, where there's two or three gathered, there am I with them. Amen? And so we need to, we need to experience worship. Today, uh, they had two preliminary songs for us to worship. Secondarily, um, we need to experience fellowship. I preached a funeral last night about Phil Porter. She lived well with joy and died well after 91 years. And one of my brothers, Mark Finley, came to me and said, he said, Lloyd, did you look at, you should look at Luke 23 about Jesus dying well. Jesus was on the cross, and while he was on the cross, he forgave sinners. He said, he said a prayer. He said, Father, forgive all these people who are nailing me to the, Christ, for the cross, for they don't know what they're doing. One man turned to him, and on the cross he was um, crucified with two criminals. Jesus, completely innocent, two criminals. One of them repents, and he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus dies, at the end he says, Father, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the hardened soldier, Roman soldier says, surely this man was the Messiah. Surely this man was God. The way in which a Christian lives and dies can be a testimony for, for, on, for non-believers to see the glory of God. The way that you die. Did you know that? The way that Christians die speak to, point to Jesus. Worship, prayer, active obedience. These are the ways that we can avoid missing the presence of God like the self-righteous son did. Don't do that. Don't be that son. The other thing is, this son is upset. We need to see clearly why he's upset. Here's why he's upset. All the money is his. He's like, Father, why are you taking my money and giving it to this scrub. You already gave him his inheritance. He's already wasted it. And so God has got to show, he shows us that our power, our money, and our position is for the good of others and for the glory of God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, in God's economy, money and power cease to control us and are used in life-giving in the community building rather than selfish ways. Money is something to be given away, and power is to be used strictly for service. And we learn this from God himself. And we've got to learn this important lesson. I think this is one of the reasons why some folk um, are dissuaded from becoming Christian. Because they know that many of us Give 10% of our money away. You heard Manohar's testimony. Uh, he needed forty dollars or $50,000. Half of that money came from you and me. And so uh, 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 non-Christians see that as foolish waste of resources to try to change lives in India, to provide hope and nurture and truth. But for us, this is the way that we live. This is the way that we go about our business. And so we see money radically different. And so we go to classes like Financial Peace University and we learn how to be good stewards of our money so that we can take care of our families and as the scripture says, have something to give other people in need. Amen? And I don't care if you make 40000 or you make 400000 
we ought to be frugal enough that we have a little bit left over to help somebody who's worse off than you. Amen? And to invest in the kingdom of God so that the manohars of the world, so that the crew ministers, the university folks, so that the 35 or plus ministries across the country, so that, so that you can have pastors that can help tend for your souls, to be quite honest with you. So our money is not just for us. Everything belongs to the Lord if you are a Christian. And it, that's a tough lesson to learn, but that's the gospel. Counteracting self-righteousness. How to stay away from it. One of the things is you've got to remember your frailties. I don't think that every month building self-esteem, you ought to be putting yourself down. But you ought to have a sober understanding of your spiritual strengths and your spiritual weaknesses so that you can remember how God has blessed you and saved you despite yourself. Remember your frailties. Uh, count your spiritual blessings. Look at your life and say, I remember when I was a young professional and things would set me off. I had a lot of problems with anger. And I, 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 all, over time, being in a church with godly men and women, God cleaned up my language bit by bit by bit. God made me a better husband bit by bit by bit, at least I hope so. God made me a, certainly a better parent, much more patience in the, in the face of insult, much more looking at the end than the beginning, seeing the real big picture. That happened little by little. Count your spiritual blessings. See how you have improved. And befriend non-Christians. One of the, the, the problems with the Pharisees, remember, was that they didn't want to be around Christians. Listen, you can't go to India and deal with men and women who are sacrificing at hills where cobras are if you are self-righteous. You'll say to yourself, this is a complete and utter waste of time. You say, these people ought to know better. That is so silly to offer yourself to snakes, right? That's what that's self-righteousness produces that in you. What it ought to produce in you is compassion. So when we read about these tragedies, whether it's in Lynn Haven or in California, it oughtn't, well, I, you don't build your house. Why are you still owning houses in Northern California when you know it's going to burn down? Every, right? That's the self-righteousness is building up in me. Why are you living in Louisiana? Just burn the whole state. Amen. It's going, you know it's going to flood. That's the self-righteousness in me that builds up. But when we see people struggling, what ought to happen is we ought to have a compassion. And we ought to remember the times when we had to, we didn't deserve grace and some person, some person gave us grace. Not all of your friends need to be people that come to church. That's a sign of self-righteousness. You ought to be able to hang out with some other folk. And they ought to be real friends. That's because that's what Jesus would do. But that's what life is about. Just people. The father invites his son into the celebration. Here's what he says. He says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father's still trying to impress on this son. This, don't you understand? This is your brother. Your brother is back. The one that you grew up with. Remember the early pictures of my two sons together? I couldn't imagine if one of them fell on hard times and the other one forgot what a blessing it was to have a brother. And how much fun they had. He says, your brother is back. He was dead, spiritual being, and now he's alive. We have to rejoice, is what he says. And he invites them back. But the issue, this is the thing. Just like with the first son, he gave him an option. He said, listen, you came to me and insulted me. And he, said, he gave him the freedom. He sold the estate and gave him his resources. And he's doing the same thing here. And that's why at the end of chapter 15, this ends unresolved. It's just out there. It says that he invited him back, and we don't know if the older self-righteous son accepted the offer. And so it is with us. Whatever our sin is, 
self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-righteousness. It's up to you to respond to Jesus Christ who gave everything so that he could have fellowship with us. It's up to you to respond today. The father seeks to save both lost sons. The first son lost to self-indulgence. He can take an insult. He sees the higher need. He receives them back in joy. The second son, he ignores the insult. He explains to him how the blessing is their relationship, not their stuff. The blessing is the relationship, not their stuff. He says, says, we got plenty of stuff, but I only got one son. I got two sons, right? We got plenty of stuff. I don't have plenty of people. He's trying to tell his son about what's important. I'll close with this. This is my older brother, Lawrence. This is probably in his early 20s. He's a costume party. He's got the gear on of the best running back in NFL history, Walter Payton, as a good Chicagoan would have on. And I don't know who the other person is (laughs) in the picture. I was blessed. Um, I had trouble in my household because of my parents' divorce. And... uh, some of the circumstances that came out of that. But the Lord blessed me with a wonderful older brother, brilliant scholar, just loved me. Wouldn't be who I am today without my brother Lawrence. When I was about seven years old, uh, my parents were married. We were living on the west side of Chicago, Van Buren and Cicero. I can see it. My mom lives in the same house today. And uh, there was a corner grocery store called Mr. C's. Back in, in those days, most people shopped at neighborhood stores, even in the big cities. And so my, my mom, after school someday, about 5 o'clock, sent us to get milk and some stuff. And so we went, and we went into the store like we have done a million times. And on the way out of the store, there were, my, my neighborhood was a working-class neighborhood that had become all black in the 60s and the early 70s. Didn't used to be, but it had turned all black. And it was a good, mostly middle-class neighborhood but there were some difficulties going on, and gang violence and so forth was starting to rise. But by this time, it hadn't overrun the neighborhood, but it was there. We were leaving the grocery store, and there were two teenage boys, about a year or two older than my brother. I'm seven, my brother's about 12. And they have a, uh, a broken bottle glass. And they said, give, a, give me your money. And my brother and I were just coming out, so we backed back up and went into the store. And I, I can't, to this day, I can't, I can't understand why, when we went to the adults, the manager of the store, people that we knew, people that knew our parents, we said, hey, man, there's, you got some thugs outside. They're trying to steal from us. Can you help us out? And the guy was, maybe he was afraid. I don't know what the reason was, but he said, no, you got to get out of here. And we were like, come on, man. We've been shopping here for, you know my parents. You got to go. So my 12-year-old brother says, he gives me the bags. He was carrying the bags. He says, Lloyd, you take the bags. My older brother was fast. He was kind of chunky, but a lot of speed. He, he came out, he came out, immediately he takes off. The boys knew he had the money, so they took off after him. So he's headed south on Cicero Avenue. I can see it just like it was yesterday. He's headed south on Cicero Avenue. He gets to the first corner, makes a left. By this time, he's got 30 yards on him. He makes a left. He goes to the alley. He turns on Cicero, goes another uh, 200 yards. Alley's right there, makes a turn back, heading north towards my house. And I'm dazed, so I'm seven. I don't know what's going on here. All I can do is take the bags and start walking back home. I get around to the other side where the alley intersects, and here comes my brother laughing. He's laughing because he left them. They, they, they ran out of gas. They ran out of gas. That's why y'all keep playing football. They ran out of gas. And, and he got to the corner. And I kept saying to myself, man, what a wonderful older brother I have. You see, in this story... It was the older brother that needed to leave the house to go find his brother. They had grown up together. They knew each other. And now, in fact, he knew he was, he probably knew where he was. He was getting reports. He knew what he was doing. Never was he moved by compassion. But Jesus is not like that. He's the true older brother. He sees all humanity dying in their selfishness, their self-indulgence, their self-righteousness. And he tells the father, I will leave everything to go And teach your children, my brothers, 
what real righteousness is. And it costs him his whole life. He's the true older brother who sacrifices himself so that the other brothers and sisters can live. Come on, talk back with me. And so that's the story we have. That's what Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see. He's trying to get the other, the sinners to see how gracious God is. And he's trying to get the Pharisees to love their brothers sacrificially. Because that is how the kingdom of God functions. Let us pray. Lord, uh, when we open our eyes, we can see ourselves in this story. And most of us, I fear, Lord, can see ourselves in both sons. We can see how following our passions and our desires and just trying to do what we want to do with no regard for anyone else that we've gone off and wasted our lives and wasted resources. And we see ourselves. And we, we're thankful that because of your death and resurrection, you, are, you forgive and restore us to yourself. And you don't leave us the way we are. You, we, you give us another spirit. You change our hearts so that we can rejoice in your goodness. And Lord, we can even see ourselves in the self-righteous son. And there's just sometimes, Lord, when we just think that we're better somehow. And we think that you, you didn't have to do as much for us. And the other folks just need to clean themselves up. They need to, they need to buck up. Lord, we don't, we don't want to fall victim to either of those extremes. We want to be infected by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and wisdom. And how we live our lives and how we go about our responsibilities we want to be like the true older brother. Show us the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.